A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Valentine's Day 2007, a man walks into Macomb County Sheriff's Office to report his wife missing. He says he has not seen or heard from her for five days nor has anyone else. Going to the authorities was the only option, as it appeared as though his wife had disappeared into thin air. Welcome to episode 16 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. February 14th, 2007. Stephen Grant entered the Macomb County Sheriff's Office. He was there to report his wife missing. The heat indoors was in contrast to the weather outside. It was snowing heavily in Michigan, and the wind was blowing at speeds of 30 miles an hour. Stephen Grant had last seen his wife Tara five days earlier. He had a notebook with him. In it, Grant had chronicled every detail from the day his wife went missing. Tara's husband proposed numerous theories about what might have happened, from suggesting that she had an affair and ran away, to submitting that Tara may have been kidnapped by terrorists, because the company she worked for dealt with chemical weapons. Grant confided in officers that his wife had been travelling so much that it was putting a strain on their marriage. He said they argued on the telephone on February 9th about how often Tara was away. Grant told police that his wife had called him from the airport, informing him her flight was delayed and that she would also be going back to Puerto Rico a day earlier than planned. The conversation triggered an argument, which continued when Tara eventually got home. They fought for about 20 minutes before Tara made a phone call and told the person on the other end of the line, I'll be out in a minute. She then left the house and got into a black sedan waiting for her at the end of the drive. Stephen Grant said he thought the vehicle might belong to an airport limousine service. The couple's au pair, a German teenager named Verena, came home shortly after. Stephen Grant shouted at her from upstairs, mistaking Verena for his wife. Over the next few days, he rang Tara but got no answer. He left several voicemails. Stephen Grant then contacted Tara's boss, who surprisingly had not heard from her. 
when Grant explained to officers why he had not reported his wife's disappearance earlier. He said that it was her boss who told him to wait. On Tuesday, four days after he last saw Tara, Stephen Grant called his wife's mother and sister, asking if they had heard from her. But they too had neither seen nor spoken to Tara. Hey, it's me once again. Um, it's quarter to seven. I'm going to tell you this. If I don't hear back from you in 15 minutes, I'm going to call Randy, get Lou's cell number, and find out what's going on. Um, this is nonsense, Tara. You owe me a phone call. You owe me to let me know what's going on between us. Stephen Grant was resentful. Tara's job took her on trips abroad, leaving her husband home with the children. Tara would spend weekdays in her company's Puerto Rican office and fly home each weekend to be with her family. Stephen Grant's witness statement mentioned that he would argue with his wife. He had told her the situation was unfair on the children. He said to Tara that she was away all the time, and that she did not seem to care. Part of Grant's statement read, I said it was not fair to the kids. They would only see her for one day. According to Tara's husband, she replied, Tough. A report was written about Tara Grant's disappearance, describing her as 5 feet 6 inches tall, 120 pounds, 34 years old, brown hair and brown eyes. But everyone knew something was wrong, because despite what Stephen Grant wanted people to believe, it was thought that Tara Grant would never have left her children. Tara Lynn Grant was born in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in June 1972. She was a cheerleader as well as a skeet shooter. She used her own 22 caliber rifle. In school, she played the clarinet and was part of the school band. She grew up in a close-knit family alongside her sister, Alicia. They lived on a 28-acre farm with a chicken coop, a few cows and a horse. When describing her daughter, Mary Destramp said, She loved life. She loved people. And they loved her. Each summer, Tara's family would vacation in a camper at the UP State Fair, spending weekends at the Porcupine Mountains and Pitchard Rocks National Lake Shore. Her childhood friend, Melissa Hansen, described Tara as very strong-willed, determined, goal-orientated. In 1990, she graduated third in a class of around 40. Tara then enrolled at Badenoch Community College in Escanaba. She graduated with an associate degree in business. While she enjoyed her peaceful and slow-paced life in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Tara wanted a change. She moved somewhere new, a place she felt would interest her. Tara loved art, and she thought the new area had more culture for her to soak up. Tara decided that Michigan State University was perfect. She moved to East Lansing, where she would ultimately meet her future husband, Stephen Grant. An introduction was made through a mutual friend in 1994, while she was an undergraduate. Tara was always determined. She worked hard and left her countryside home for a place with more opportunities in her field. Stephen Grant was also ambitious, a trait shared with Tara. He was persistent in his pursuit of his future wife's affections and he gathered the courage to ask her out for the first time. She turned him down. Stephen Grant, who was born in January 1970, 
was not popular growing up. Friends described him as odd and awkward. He had a childhood ambition to work in politics. Grant dropped out of Michigan State University, taking a job working with former state senator Jack Faxon. It was his career that initially impressed Tara. Grant did not give up in his pursuit for the woman he would go on to marry despite the initial rejection, and he was not shy about making a statement. He once drove six hours to attend Tara's grandmother's funeral, even though he was not invited, and Tara had a boyfriend who Grant met at the funeral. Somehow this worked in his favour. Tara was impressed and they became a couple. Some saw this behaviour as intrusive and brazen, but Tara in her youth believed it was a thoughtful romantic gesture. Things moved fast. The pair moved in together and six months after they first met, Grant proposed on the steps of the Detroit Institute of Arts. In 1994, Tara graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's degree in business administration, with an emphasis on marketing. The following year, she got an entry-level job with Washington Group International. It was a natural fit for Tara, who was a born saleswoman and conversation came easy. Tara and Stephen Grant were married not long after. And in 1997, they purchased their first home together. Tara worked hard and had a good job. The young couple's life seemed to be going swimmingly. Outwardly successful, they quickly reached milestones both personally and professionally. But the balance in the relationship shifted. Stephen Grant had worked with a politician for a short time and had aspirations to continue working in politics. However, it did not work out that way. Instead, he was taking unskilled jobs. Tara was a rising star, climbing the career ladder within a global company and Stephen Grant felt left behind. Grant was said to make people uneasy. He was arrogant and overly confident. His social skills were lacking, and his awkward forwardness left many people feeling uncomfortable. Grant had a habit of exaggerating to make himself seem smarter or more successful, even falsely claiming that he worked in the same position as his wife. People would also often mention Grant's loud voice. Stephen and Tara Grant had their first child in 2000, a daughter they named Lindsay. Two years later, they welcomed a little boy. His name was Ian. The family lived in an upscale neighbourhood in Detroit, Michigan. Local residents thought they were just an average, middle-class, happy, functional family. To the outside world, anyway. They had money, a happy marriage and two loving children. A neighbour had said he admired Grant and Tara's marriage. He had even felt envious of them. Tara was then employed as an executive at an international construction and engineering firm. She split her time between an office in Puerto Rico and her home in Detroit. In the months prior to her disappearance, she had been travelling to San Juan to work during the weekdays. Tara made good money, earning six figures, more than enough to keep the family comfortable. The children attended private school, and Tara and Stephen Grant hired an au pair to help take care of the children while Tara's husband worked at his part-time job. For the most part, Grant was a stay-at-home dad, something he was not happy about. 
Tara's hectic work schedule meant that she was frequently not home, so Grant took care of the day-to-day running of the house, caring for the children along with the help from an au pair. Tara was supposed to be going back to Puerto Rico for a presentation, but she never turned up, which was very unusual. She adored her children, but that weekend she never rang to check in on them. Her family started to become concerned, so her husband reported her missing. A national hotline was set up, and operators were receiving 20 to 25 tips a day regarding Tara's disappearance. Stephen Grunt was adamant about assisting in the search for his wife. Sergeant Pam McLean said that when she arrived at the Grant's home with a fellow officer, Stephen Grant was, quote, very nervous. He was very fidgety. He was trying to be overly cooperative. And the more questions we started asking him, the more nervous he became. Grant gave regular interviews to the media and held his own daily press conferences about his wife's disappearance. After being detained for a driving offence the day after he reported Tara missing, Stephen Grant hired a lawyer as he started to claim that the police were trying to pin Tara's disappearance on him. He would no longer speak to the officers freely, but he was happy to talk to journalists. Stephen Grant appeared on the local daily news. His wide, teary eyes and willingness to talk made him an ideal interviewee. One minute he was pleading for Tara to come home. The next he was talking about how often she was away from the children. Stephen Grant insinuated that his wife had been unfaithful. Still, emails to an ex-partner showed that it was not Tara who had intended to stray from the marriage. The electronic correspondence from Stephen Grant to his former girlfriend said things like, I just think of marriage vows like speed limits. Sometimes you have to break them. When asked about the emails, Grant insisted they were jokes made between old friends. Quote, I did say, I want to see you naked, but that's because I'm a guy. Men always want to see women naked. In addition to the flirtatious emails, Stephen Grant had also confided in his ex-girlfriend that he believed Tara was cheating on him with a man he referred to as the old geezer. The ex-girlfriend asked, So what are you going to do about the cheating wife? Grant responded, Don't know yet. In fact, in another email, Grant disclosed to his former girlfriend that a friend had helped him load software onto a computer that intercepted Tara's electronic correspondence. As he described it, the magic of intercepted emails and phone calls. In further correspondence with his ex-girlfriend, Grant discussed suspicions that Tara had a further non-physical relationship with another man around two years earlier. But as Grant explained, the relationship amounted to just texts and emails and phone calls. Grant's ex-girlfriend would later state to the media, It seemed he was fed up with Tara. He told me he thought she was seeing another guy. He didn't say whether he was going to divorce her, though. In fact, he implied he didn't want to get a divorce because he didn't want to mess up his kids. There was still no trace of Tara Grant. She had not made any calls since she arrived home on February 9th, 2007. No car service had picked her up and Tara's credit cards had not been used either. Stephen Grant made numerous television appearances throughout the two weeks following Tara's disappearance. During this time, he had accused the police of harassing him. 
although he had been offered a polygraph. He refused. Grant's attorney David Green said that Grant would take the test if someone other than the Macomb County Sheriff's Department administered it. Grant complained that to the police he was the main suspect in Tara's disappearance, yet officers denied this was the case. Still, they did question why some crucial details were not provided to them. For example, Grant had never informed the police that he believed Tara was having an affair. That information had come from his ex-girlfriend. On February 21st, the Macomb County Sheriff's Department held a press conference. They spoke about the emails Grant had exchanged with his ex-girlfriend. County Sheriff Mark Hackle said, The emails are very concerning, and we're looking into it. They speculated that some clues to Tara's whereabouts could be on the family's computers. However, Stephen Grant had denied them access. Just the following day at a press conference, officers announced they would begin searching for Tara Grant in nearby parks. On February 24th, a search of Stony Creek Metro Park was carried out, but nothing was found. The park covers 4,461 acres, with Stony Creek Lake sitting in the centre. In many press interviews, Stephen Grant had spoken about the park, constantly referencing how he used to go there with his family. By this stage, the case was national news. The police asked the public to keep an eye out for anything in the park. In late February, a hiker found a Ziploc bag in Stony Creek Metro Park. Sheila Werner noticed the bag and made a grim discovery. It was full of blood and metal shavings. When the police determined that it was human blood, they were able to obtain a search warrant for the Grant home because Stephen Grant worked in a machine shop and would have access to metal tools. On March 1st, Grant was pulled over for failing to signal and consequently arrested for driving on a suspended licence. A police report claimed an officer found $4,000 in two envelopes inside the vehicle. This was not Grant's first experience with the police. He had been reprimanded before for careless driving, failure to obtain a gun permit, and multiple occasions of driving on a suspended licence. On March 2nd, the detectives and crime scene technicians began searching the Grant home. They did not expect to find much. At this stage, Tara had been missing for over three weeks. If anything had happened to her within the home, there had been ample time to get rid of any evidence. Stephen Grant was brought to his house as the police began their search. When Grant left in his friend's pickup truck to walk the dock, the lead detective Brian Kozlowski went out to the garage to give the technician space to forensically search the home. Detective Kozlowski noticed a large green container slotted in beside a box of children's toys. The container looked out of place and he did not remember seeing it when he first came to the Grant home on February 14th. He decided to take a look inside. As he opened the box, he noticed a black bin liner. Inside of that was another bin liner. He tore open each bag and put his hand inside. Something felt wet. At first, Detective Kozlowski thought it was a pair of folded trousers. Then he saw a bra. Crime scene technicians immediately took over. As they cut open the bags, they realised it was a female torso with no head attached. The body was still clothed. 
as detectives quickly scrambled to locate Stephen Grant. They realised that he was gone. Stephen Grant had told his neighbour he needed to borrow a car. A bright yellow SUV, which was not the most inconspicuous vehicle. Grant then drove to his sister's home and dropped off his dog for her to look after. His mobile phone pinged off cell towers heading north. Officers then tracked the device after a phone call, which narrowed down the search area. Stephen Grant had called his sister, who noticed the area code was from northern Michigan. Grant's sister then rang the police and told them she believed her brother was in a remote area where he had once rented a cabin with his wife. Wagoner Shant State Cabins in Wilderness State Park in northern Michigan. It was the first trip that Tara and Stephen Grant had ever taken together. Grant stopped in a shop on the way to the park. He bought alcohol, pills, razor blades and a toy gun. He intended to pretend it was real to entice police officers into shooting him. It appeared as though he had purchased these items to end his life. That weekend, Grant was featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted. The police announced that Tara Grant's husband was their only suspect. Stephen Grant's attorney had concerns after multiple calls with his client. The attorney was sure Grant would harm himself. On March 4th, after searching the remote cabins and roads in Wilderness State Park at the tip of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, police found the yellow truck that Grant had been driving. Officers followed the footprints from the vehicle and found Stephen Grant underneath a pine tree in the snow. Police shouted at him, and he slowly reached for something that bulged in his pocket. Before he got a chance to remove the item, the suspect was placed on his stomach and handcuffed. Grant's speech was slurred. He was suffering from hypothermia and had frostbite to his toes. He was visibly confused. When asked if he knew where he was, Grant said Lansing, which was more than 200 miles away. Stephen Grant was airlifted to hospital, and the next day, whilst in his hospital bed, he confessed to the murder of his wife, Tara Grant. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Stephen Grant confessed to police that he and Tara were arguing after she returned home on February 9th. He was not happy about how much time she was spending at work. After Tara tried to walk away from the situation, Grant grabbed her wrist, and Tara responded by slapping him in the face and scratching his nose. Grant then struck Tara in the face, causing her to fall to the ground. Tara threatened to call the police, telling Grant he would end up losing their children and becoming homeless. Instead of attempting to de-escalate the situation, Grant responded by putting his hand around Tara's neck and strangling her. Stephen Grant claimed he feared he was going to end up going to prison because he had hit Tara. 
I squeezed, 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 he would later say. Grant admitted that he had covered Tara's face with a pair of grey briefs or possibly a t-shirt so that he did not have to look at his wife while he ended her life. Tara was attempting to grab at his hands to get him to stop, but in the end it was no use. Tara's husband confessed that he waited until he knew that she was dead before he loosened his grip. He grabbed my hand at one point, but it was too late. I couldn't stop him. I knew I was going to prison. I think it was my brown leather belt. I knew I couldn't carry her, so I wrapped that around her neck and I used it to basically pull her down the stairs. Grant tightened a belt around Tara's neck and dragged her body into the garage. As he attempted to lift her into the back of her car, Grant dropped her body when the belt snapped. Her head hit the floor. Grant then put Tara's body into the back of the SUV and covered it with a plastic sheet. Shortly after Stephen Grant had moved his wife's body, their au pair Verena came home from a night out. As she walked into the kitchen through the garage where Grant had just concealed his wife's body, Grant shouted downstairs, What the hell are you doing home? Get out! Grant lied and told a surprised Verena that he thought it was Tara, who had walked through the door. Grant then began telling the au pair his concocted story about Tara leaving in a black sedan. He slumped down on a dining room chair, crying to Verena. Grant told her he did not want to get a divorce because his parents had gone through the same thing, and he had been through hell. Two days later, Stephen Grant drove the SUV with Tara's body inside to his father's tool and DIY shop. There he cut his wife's body into 14 pieces. Spurred on by alcohol, he persisted through episodes of vomiting to dismember Tara, before placing her head, torso and extremities into plastic bags and then into a large container. After this, he drove to Stony Creek Park and loaded the container onto his children's sled. The sled began to slide away down a small slope, toppling over and the gruesome contents spilled onto the snow. After gathering all 14 pieces, Grant dispersed them around an area the family had once enjoyed as their favourite vacation spot. Police found most, but unfortunately not all of the remains. Officers believe they may have been eaten by animals. After the grim discovery, the community came together to hold a candlelit vigil in Tara Grant's honour. Around 200 people gathered outside the family's snow-covered home, which still had a crime scene cordon around the front garden. Mourners left flowers, candles, teddy bears and notes of condolences. Tara's mother stated... We're overwhelmed by the thoughts, by the prayers, by the letters on Tara's website. It's unbelievable to me the concerns and the prayers that people have given us. Tara's visitation was held on March 25th at a funeral home in Escanaba, the town where she was born. Her closed casket was adorned with flowers and was situated at the front of the funeral home beneath two large photographs of Tara, as well as an angel statuette. Nearby there was a poem that poignantly read in part, She is a beautiful person, from without and within. We will never forget you, Tara Lynn. The visitation was six hours long and ended with the reading of two poems and a prayer. Many of those in attendance wore a purple ribbon to symbolise domestic violence. 
Tara's funeral was the following day at the First Lutheran Church in Gladstone. Almost 300 mourners crammed into the church, where Tara was recollected as a loyal friend and devoted mother who had thrived as a businesswoman. One of her uncles, Tom McLaughlin, said, Today and every day, let her continue to be an aspiration and source of strength. I know she'll be there for us, and I know she'll do it with a smile on her face. Tara's loved ones reminisced about old times, happier times. Her friend Melissa Hansen recalled sitting beside her during a meeting at the Girl Scouts as they chanted, Make new friends but keep the old. One is silver and the other is gold. Melissa fondly stated, Tara was a true, loyal, golden friend. Tom McLaughlin urged mourners not to let their lives be dominated by anger or pain for Tara's sake. Tara's uncle said that they could honour Tara's legacy by having a capacity for forgiveness, faith, understanding and compassion. Stephen Grant's lawyer stepped down from representing Grant when his wife's body was found on March 4th. The lawyer cited irreconcilable differences with his client. Grant was arraigned on March 6th after returning to Macomb County without representation. Honourable Judge Dennis LeDuc read Grant his rights and the charges before a plea of not guilty was submitted. The judge told Grant, I want to advise you that you are charged with count one homicide, murder in the first degree that is premeditated that you did deliberately, with intent to kill and with premeditation, kill and murder Tara Grant. Judge Dennis LeDuc added, You are also charged with count two, disinternment and or mutilation of a dead body, that of Tara Grant. Stephen Grant was subsequently kept in jail under 24-hour supervision. Macomb County Circuit Chief Judge Antonio Viviano opted against the usual process of selecting an attorney from a provided list of names and handpicked new representation for Grant. On March 9th, Grant met with his new counsel, Stephen Rabot, a respected criminal defence attorney who graduated from Michigan State University in the late 70s. The first order of business for Grant's new representation was to issue a gag order. Rabot wanted a judge to direct police and prosecutors not to comment on the case to the media or discuss the matter. Rabot said, I will represent Mr. Grant ethically, professionally and protect his rights. Beyond that, I have no statement for the media. Addressing the competence of other attorneys available to the defendant, the Macomb County Bar Association voiced their position regarding the way Grant's attorney was picked, saying, We are severely disappointed that the procedure laid out in the court's own administrative order of September 25, 2006, was not followed in this case. Macomb County Bar Association President-elect William Stargard said, The 22 Macomb County Bar Association attorneys who have been screened, selected and currently serve on the court-appointed A-list are all highly qualified and capable of handling a high-profile case. Stephen Grant never disclosed his motive behind killing his wife of almost ten years. He had been increasingly resentful of Tara. She was successful and ambitious, and much loved by their children. Grant later admitted, To be honest, as weird as it sounds for me to say this, I was the perfect mum. 
not terror. He claimed that he regularly struggled with his wife over, quote, trying to show who's boss and who's going to run the household. It didn't need to be that way. Tara's sister Alicia disagreed with this characterization and was adamant that Tara's life centred around her children. Alicia said that her sister wasn't the domineering force in that marriage. She was the breadwinner, but by no means the controlling force in the household. When he was unhappy in his marriage, Stephen Grant began looking elsewhere. After attempting to rekindle a relationship with a former partner who was not interested in the married man's advances, he looked closer to home. Grant began an affair with the family's teenage au pair, Verena. He had tricked Verena into thinking Tara was cheating on him. Grant began flirting, and eventually the relationship turned physical. They ended up sharing Grant and Tara's bed, even on the night Grant had killed Tara. But Verena did not know he was a killer at this point. Grant even used her as an alibi, telling Verena to come home from a night out. He was then able to concoct a story when Grant said that he thought Verena was Tara when he shouted at her before going on to complain about how Tara left him. Eventually, Verena did admit to the authorities that there had been an affair. She had no idea that Grant had killed Tara moments before returning to the house that night. The affair had been going on for about a month. Farina would later describe how she was in love, and she believed he had been falling for her too. The trial began in late 2007, almost ten months after Tara Grant had been killed. The proceedings lasted close to a month. Seating jurors proved challenging because almost all locals were familiar with the case. One dismissed jury member said that he was glad not to be on the jury as he had seen the local news coverage and was already convinced Stephen Grant was guilty. When the jury members were finally selected, they were presented with a great deal of harrowing evidence including Grant's three-hour confession and graphic images of Tara's body, which her family, including her mother, also bravely witnessed. Prosecutor Eric Smith's opening statements detailed that Grant was focused on one thing after he killed his wife, a 19-year-old au pair. Quote, He's naked. He texts the woman he's fallen in love with and that she owes him a kiss. Then he left a note on her pillow saying the same thing. To do this, he had to walk past Tara's still warm and lifeless body while his children slept nearby. Macomb County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant Brian Kozlowski, who had been the lead investigator on the case, detailed to the jury how they had been suspicious of the defendant's story from the very beginning. Detective Sergeant Kozlowski testified that everybody he interviewed regarding Tara's disappearance all said the same thing. Tara would not break off contact with her children or with her employer without a word. Stephen Grant had also claimed that Tara left their home in a black sedan. Still, investigators had learned that since 2006, Tara had always driven herself to the airport. Moreover, her work papers were still in the car. Then there were Stephen Grant's claims that Tara had decided to return to work in Puerto Rico a day earlier than planned. However, investigators had confirmed that Tara had not changed her flight nor did she contact her employer to say she was returning early. I could not make Stephen Grant's story work, Detective Sergeant Kozlowski said before walking the jury through Grant's confession. 
Dr. Daniel Spitz testified at the trial. The doctor was the chief medical examiner for Macomb County. He performed an autopsy on Tara's remains. The examination was carried out on March 5th. It was concluded that Tara died of strangulation. There was evidence she had put up a fierce struggle for her life. She had bruises and scratches on her face. One of the large bruises was on her jawline, consistent with markings of a punch. There was also a blunt force trauma injury to the back of her head and a fractured sternum. The body had external marks that showed a manual compression of the neck. Internally, a vertical fracture to the thyroid cartilage. Manual strangulation requires 11 pounds of pressure placed on both carotid arteries for 10 seconds to cause unconsciousness. An additional 33 pounds of pressure needs to be applied to the trachea to completely close it. With persistence of this position, brain death will occur in four to five minutes. In that time, the victim will experience extreme pain, the possibility of damage to the larynx and fracture of the hyoid bone. This is a horseshoe-shaped bone situated between the chin and the thyroid cartilage. When the airway is compressed, it is an extremely frightening sensation of air hunger that will induce a violent struggle, which means the killer not only has to retain significant pressure on the neck, but also restrain the victim, who will likely be putting up a fight. Death eventually ensues when a hypoxic state sets in. This is when the brain has been deprived of adequate oxygen supply at tissue level. The remains had been cut up with several types of serrated blades. Dr. Spitz revealed that the left and right lower extremities, as well as some of the soft tissue, were never recovered. Verena Durkis, who was 20 years old at the time of the trial, told the court how she and Stephen Grant began a flirtatious relationship after she was hired to care for the two Grant children. Verena cried as she described feeling like she was falling in love with Grant. She explained, I wanted to protect him. I believed him. I believed everything he said. Wiping her tears away, she looked over at Grant, who sat emotionless, having listened to his lover's tearful statement. Marina told the jury how it was just five months after she moved in with the family that the relationship became physical. He said, you're beautiful, and I want to sleep with you, the witness said. Marina struggled to contain her emotion as she explained one event on the night of February 8th, when she and Grant were intimate in the same bed Grant shared with his wife. Tara and Grant's six-year-old entered the bedroom, and Verena had to hide under the covers so they would not see her. On February 9th, Stephen Grant strangled Tara to death, and then sent a text message to Verena which read, You owe me a kiss. Stephen Grant and his attorney had requested that Judge Dennis LeDuc remove himself from the case stating that the judge had released too much information to the public. It was also argued that Judge LeDuc was prejudiced towards the defendant. The judge refused this request, so Stephen Rabot presented the argument before Macomb County Chief Paul Cassidy. But he too denied the request. On the fourth day of the trial, Sergeant Larry King from the Macomb County Sheriff's Department testified about finding Tara's scattered remains. Amongst the body parts, there were also knives, latex gloves, saws and bloody rags. Stephen Grant's confession was played for the jury. 
He could be heard detailing how he killed Tara after she had come home for the weekend. Grant was angry that Tara was planning to head back to Puerto Rico on Sunday. He complained that his wife was spending too much time with her boss, putting work before her family. Grant stated, I said you spend too much time with him already, and you don't spend enough time with us. I said why? And she said fuck off. She said too bad. She said i got to do what I have to do in my job and is none of your business. So she started to turn around and I grabbed her wrist and I said, just stop it. You're not going anywhere. I said, we're going to finish this conversation and she slapped me. Grant went on to say that in their bedroom he struck Tara and she fell to the floor hitting her head. Quote, and struck back out at Tara. I don't know. And after that, I don't really remember what happened. And I know she... She fell. I know that she banged the back of her head on the floor, and then she said something like, That's it, I'm gonna take the kids. You're gonna be fucking homeless. You're a piece of shit. And I choked her. Grant claimed that Tara threatened to call the police despite alleging that she had hit him first, so he ended her life. He told officers, I grabbed her neck, and at first I was only grabbing her neck to make her stop talking, to make her shut up. I just kept squeezing, squeezing, squeezing and wouldn't let go, and that's when I covered up her face. I'm thinking, I killed my wife. I killed my wife, what the hell do I do? And I was panicked. Absolutely panicked. Grant detailed how he dragged his wife down the stairs to the garage before placing her body in the SUV. She was too hard to pick up, and the belt snapped or broke, and she fell, and it was the most disgusting like it sounded like dropping a watermelon on the cement. After hiding Tara's body in the trunk of her own car, Grant said that their au pair Verena came home moments later and he told her that Tara had stormed out after hitting him. Two days later, Stephen Grant went to his father's workshop where he destroyed Tara's work equipment and dismembered her body with a hacksaw saying, I cut Tara's hands off, and I cut her next joint and the next joint, and at some point I threw up. Um, and I threw up again, and I drank some more whiskey, and I just told myself, look, if you don't do this, you're going to prison for the rest of your life, and I kept cutting her. The evidence had been presented. This included the torso found in the garage stored amongst the children's play equipment. Stephen Grant's three-hour confession in which he admitted to killing his wife and the remains recovered by officers. Witness testimony also proved damning evidence against Stephen Grant. It took the jury over 15 hours to return a verdict. Stephen Grant was found guilty of second-degree murder. The jury could not reach a unanimous decision on whether the murder was premeditated or happened in the heat of the moment. As defined by the American justice system, second-degree murder is an intentional murder that lacks premeditation. It is thought to be an act that intends to cause bodily harm. The act demonstrates an extreme indifference to human life. This does not, however, mean that the killer does not intend on killing the victim in the moment. They do. It just implies there was no pre-planning to commit the murder. Stephen Grant was sentenced the following February. His defence counsel had been seeking a term of 15 to 25 years. 
However, prosecutor Eric Smith released a 40-page memorandum that revealed that Tara and Stephen Grant's two children had witnessed the murder of their mother. Their daughter had told her aunt that she and her brother had seen their parents fighting before their father strangled their mother to death. The prosecution made the disclosure because they wanted Circuit Judge Diane Drzinski to exceed the minimum sentencing guidelines, which called for a minimum of 18 to 31 years in prison and a maximum of life. Stephen Grant was sentenced to serve between 50 to 80 years, the minimum of 50 for Tara's murder, and 6 to 10 years for mutilating her body. The judge described Grant as demonic, manipulative, barbaric. The memo filed by the Macomb County prosecutor Eric Smith stated the following. Not only did two innocent children have their mother ripped away from them and brutally murdered by their father, the children actually witnessed it. In early January 2008, the prosecutor's office learned Lindsay Grant, seven-year-old daughter of Tara Grant, disclosed on Christmas Day that she and younger brother Ian witnessed a fight between her parents. She then described it in detail. How they watched their father kill their mother. The last thing Tara Grant may have seen in her final moments while being strangled by her husband were her children's horrified faces. Stephen Grant later asked for a retrial, stating it was an unfair trial due to the media coverage surrounding the case. Grant had argued that the pre-trial publicity made it impossible for the proceedings to be impartial. Still, it was Grant who had put himself forward for countless interviews and press conferences. The judge would rule that Grant had in fact received a fair trial, and Grant's rights were not violated when he gave his confession. In December, Alicia Standifer filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Stephen Grant, worth $50 million. Tara's sister was awarded full control of Tara's 401k, two life insurance policies and Tara's half of the family's Washington Township home. It was expected to be put in Alicia's name and imminently sold. Eric Smith, the prosecutor on the case, was fined $750 by Michigan's Attorney Grievance Commission for referring to Stephen Grant as a sociopath. It was a fine that Smith did not contest. The commission said his comments lacked courtesy and respect. Six months after the trial, Stephen Grant's father ended his life. He had reportedly been trying to get visitation with his grandchildren, who had been adopted by Tara's sister Alicia and her husband Derek. Both children Ian and Lindsay changed their surnames to Standifer. Alicia said that she did not want Ian and Lindsay to see their grandparents because it triggered a traumatic response, as did anything that reminded them of their biological father, Stephen Grant. Alicia remarked, It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with his mum. We have constantly, from day one, looked out for their best interest. As their parents, that's what our job is to do. Every year, Tara's children attend Tara's Walk, hosted with Turning Point, a charity that provides emergency support and prevention services for domestic and sexual violence survivors in Metro Detroit. In September 2019, they held the 12th annual Tara's Walk, at Freedom Hill Amphitheater, raising almost $30,000 on a yearly basis. 
This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.